So just a couple weeks ago, I came up on my three-year mark here at Christ Church. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, I'm kidding. Like, oh, mom, I made it. Um, And when I first got here, I I met a guy. I knew I was going to hit it off with him. I knew I liked him. But I also knew enough about his story to know he was, he was still in the midst of some pretty intense struggles. He had struggled for a long time with sin, as we all do, but in this case, some pretty serious sin, some deep sin, the kind that has serious consequences in your own life and oftentimes in the lives of others, people you love. So I heard his story uh, from friends and loved ones and was asked, would I, would I pray? Would I pray for God to do something great? I know in the back of my mind, I thought, yeah, sure, I will. But I also live in reality. How many tries do people get? How much hope do we offer out when the failures are repeated? A question that we also have to ask ourselves. You see, I knew that God could work in this situation. Because I'm, you know, I work for a church. Being a professional religious person, you know the right answer to the question. Of course, God could work in this situation, but would he? Would he work? And I confess to you that I I certainly had my doubts about that. Call it gospel skepticism. You know, I've lived enough life to just be careful. Maybe not jaded, but at least careful about this whole grace thing. Because I believe grace, but I also understand a little bit of math. And when I heard this brother's story, my sense was that the probability was very low that God would do a miracle in his life. Some people are just too far gone, right? Think of that in the context of Rome in the quantitative sense. For the Jews, some people are just too far gone. They're crazy, wild Roman pagans. They don't deserve the love of God. They're not chosen. Think of it now in a qualitative sense. Some people have just done things that are too bad. They're just too far gone. Grace sounds neat. Paul can even make it sound really logical and rational as he moves his argument forward. But let's be honest. Some people are just too far gone. Now, this is exactly what Paul is beginning to address in this text through the example, the insurmountable example for the Jews of Abraham, the great patriarch. Paul does this with mercy, but also in a tactical way. He understands that these objections are normal, but the grace of God is not normal. So even as we gather week after week to hear the gospel, we have to continue to be surprised by this thing that is so different than, quote, how the world works. Paul is addressing their objections. And where do these objections come from? Last week is where they come from. The end of Romans chapter 3, where Paul gives us that tightly packed bird's eye view of the glory of the gospel. That Jesus is the new temple, that Jesus is the mercy seat, that he is a propitiation for sins. He bears the wrath of God. He brings the righteousness of new life. That he is indeed our redeemer, our rescuer, who buys us back from death and raises us up. 
from the grave. That we're not just those who need a little bit of medicine. If you get to the end of Romans halfway chapter 3, if you go through that section on the sinfulness of man and you think, oh yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. I'm good enough. I just need a little bit of medicine. Then one should be so inclined to reread that section. You don't just need a little bit of medicine. You don't have an ear infection. You're dead. You need the power of a resurrection. And so Paul has made this glorious case that all who would believe such a scandalous truth might be justified. The unjust, the unholy, broken, wounded sinners like us are brought into a standing and status of righteousness before God, even as we continue to struggle with our sin. This was Luther's great comment. And I'm going to butcher the Latin. And since so many of you speak Latin, I'll be really worried about that. He said, Simul justus et peccator. I am simultaneously justified in my status and standing before a holy God. I am in the place of righteousness, even as you and me, because we're normal people and we're not Jesus and you're not super Christians, continue to struggle and wrestle with our sin. And Paul says, you can have all of that. You can have all of the high-powered octane jet fuel in the engine through the vehicle of faith. Not through your works. Not by keeping the law as a basis or a ground for that status. Of course, if you are saved by grace, then the grace that saves blossoms forth into obedience. If you love me, you will obey what I command. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't start with your, your goodness. You're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And Christians, we do this all the time. You have a bad week. You come into church feeling awful and guilty and God's mad at you. But if you have a good week, you come in going, ah, I'm feeling pretty justified today. No, the scandal of the gospel is that through the simple vehicle of faith and belief, your good week and your bad week are irrelevant as it regards your standing before the holiness of God. And not just that he has forgiven your sin, that would be amazing, but that he has replaced your sin with the full, finished righteousness of his son. That is the case that Paul is making. And so you can see why some of the Jews go, yeah, bro, that seems way too good to be true. Way too good to be true. And it did seem to many too good to be true. And yet, like many of us, it's not without evidence. Paul has witnessed the reality of this grace. It's his own story. So we can't sugarcoat Paul in our children's Bibles. He was a brilliant scholar. He was a theologian. He was a zealot and he was a persecutor of Christians. He was basically, like you read about in the news, in certain African countries right now, a terrorist of Christians. Some were enslaved, some were put in jail. Others, it's almost sure, were put to death. Because how dare they blaspheme the Old Testament by saying Jesus is the Messiah. But this persecutor was knocked off of his high horse, blinded to his own strength and power, and in abject unworthiness, blinded with scales, completely unable to help himself, he was pulled in, pushed off his high horse, and pulled in to the love of Jesus. So you have to understand, in this text, Paul's pathway to the main point, his pathway is to answer these objections, mostly objections that those in the church in Rome 
who were Jewish but believed Jesus was the Messiah would have. That's his path to answer objections. But that's not his main point. His path is objections. But his main point is that this grace is amazing. That this grace actually answers the objections while maintaining the justice and righteousness of God and somehow making unjust sinners righteous in his place. Grace answers us. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Through the story of Abraham, through your own doubts, through your own feelings about yourself and your friends and your coworkers, that sorry, some people are too far gone, and man, that sounds too good to be true. I want you to hear this morning that grace answers us. So why do we object? Why does this gospel push on us? There's a few ways to understand that in the context of Romans, and I want you to write yourself in to these. First, you have Roman culture itself. Like us, we know the way the world works, man. We know the reality of the power structures and principalities of the world. I mean, you got to be kidding me. All I have to do to be made righteous before a holy God and adopted into his family is to believe? Ridiculous. It's too easy. That's not how the world works. And we know that. On top of that, flip side of the coin for the Romans was what about our glory? In Rome, their version of rugged individualism was the glory of man and his ability to conquer and conquer and bring peace. But it was a thinly veiled peace. It was a peace as long as you followed the rules as an obedient servant to the empire. So from the Roman perspective, and Paul is writing to this great and glorious city, the greatest city on earth, potentially the greatest city that's ever been on earth, Rome at the time of Paul. And they're looking at him going, man, This is really sweet, but this is not how the world works. Likewise, the Jewish folks in the congregation are pushed hard by this message of grace at the end of chapter 3. You see, God has given us the law. And we, we keep the law in a sense to maintain the favor of God, or so some of us think. And the law is good. And by the way, because we have the law, we are marked out from these pagan Gentile people you all people, were marked out as the chosen ones. And it's through the keeping of the law and obedience unto the law that the whole world knows we are the special chosen people of God. It's precisely why in that time, second temple period, after Malachi all the way up to Jesus, so many of the Jewish groups, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the scribes, think of the, uh, the folks down south with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community, they would add laws to the law. You've heard this, right? Sometimes preachers abuse this, so always be careful what preachers say. Always. Well, they had the 400 laws of the Old Testament, and they added all these laws to them. Well, why do you think they did that? Because they remembered their exile. Israel remembered that because of their disobedience, they went into exile. So when God brought them back to such a lesser glory of the temple and the city, and they could only build a better temple with the help of pagan little Herod, They were like, we're not going to screw up again. We're not going down that path again. So if the Old Testament has X laws, we're adding laws. If it says to purify yourself once a day, we're going three times a day. 
Because through our holiness and obedience to the law, which mark us out as the chosen people, we will usher in the ability for the Messiah to return and conquer and reign and overthrow this ghastly Roman oppression. What about us? Why does this gospel push on us? And I think it's because in our heart of hearts, we struggle to believe God's grace for other people. We don't believe it for ourselves. That's why as a community, verbally, we confess, forgive yourself. That's why we confess some sins I cannot face. You know, there's, this is well known in, in church circles among religious sociologists that the people in church who tend to be the most judgmental are those who have the hardest time believing the grace and the mercy of God for themselves. We judge others, we make them other, we push them away because that's how we perceive ourselves to be before God. We can't believe the grace of God for ourselves. And so we, there's gotta be a little work, right? I mean, maybe God goes 90% of the way, but I still gotta do my 10%, right? I mean, to stand on the solid ground, I, I still have to, you know, I can't just, just believe it. It sounds unfair, it sounds unjust. It's because we, we're so deeply marred from the possibility of believing that glorious divine justice for ourselves. So we push on the gospel. We bring our objections, but the grace of God pushes us harder. And Paul does something brilliant here. Paul is a, a master craftsman of the legal trade. He, he's not only acute in his arguments, but he's aesthetic in the way he argues these things. And so he's artful here. It's kind of like that Matthew 10, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Because as Paul is addressing Jewish objections, he knows if there's one guy the Jews can't object to, it's Abraham. Nobody objects to Abraham. I mean, Abraham is the man. He's, he's the father of the faith and therefore is the father of the faithful. All faithful Jews have Abraham as their father. No one can object to Abraham. Everybody loves him. He's the patriarch. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the nation of Israel. He's the guy who left pagan Ur, and most likely, we learn this from the Old Testament, Abraham's father was a pagan, not a God-fearer. He leaves by faith. He walks by faith. He believes children by faith. He goes up onto the mountain with his son by faith. It doesn't get any better than Abraham. And so Paul asks a simple question to those in objection. Okay, great. We all agree on Abraham. Simple. How was he justified? How was Abraham made just? How was Abraham made righteous? Was it by works? Well, of course it wasn't by works. Most of these folks had Genesis 15 memorized. Everybody knew that Abraham heard the word of the Lord. The promise of God came to Abraham. So it was God who spoke. The words were sparse. Abraham didn't know that the seed of the woman was going to come eventually through Mary to be Jesus, but he heard God's word and he believed God's promise because of the one who spoke. Abraham believed what little was revealed to him. He had a little lamp unto his feet, a little light unto his path, and he believed in that promise of the kingdom come, what little he heard, and God said, that's enough. Not because of the size of your faith, not because of the content of the information, but because of the object of your faith. Because the one who you have believed in, even with imperfect faith and minimal information, 
is God who is sufficient to save. He believed and God took the debt of his unbelief and replaced it with the credit of God's own righteousness. Remember, righteousness, that Old Testament word so rich, covenant justice, God's promise-making, promise-keeping declaration over all of creation that he is going to make all things new. And that's what's so beautiful about the church is that we're gathered here amidst our differences to hear and believe this gospel to be strengthened so we can be sent out into Santa Fe to do the justice of God. You know, many of our friends, they, they, would, they would heartily agree it's too good to be true. And we are those who are now sent into this city to show them by the way that we speak and the way that we act and love sacrificially that the goodness of God is becoming true in the world around us. So it's not by works that Abraham is saved. It's by the covenant justice of God imputed to Abraham through simple belief because God has done it. And it's not a wage. There's no boasting. Look, when you get your paycheck after the end of the week or the month, or I don't know when people get paid, direct deposited, I just pray about the money. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. When you get your paycheck, oh, thank you, my boss. Oh, my boss, thank you so much for bestowing upon me with such benevolence with this paycheck. And then curse the government for taking money. No, I'm just kidding. But like, you know, no. Thank God we have roads. Simmer down. Um, no, you don't do that. You say, I've worked. I earned it. This is hard. I worked all week. For some of you, that means long hours. For some of you, that means being away from your family. It means travel. It means putting up with people in your workplace who are not as nice as you. So when you get that paycheck, you don't go, well, thank you, my boss. You go, yeah, I had to work really hard to get that. Paul says that's not how it was for Abraham. It was a gift or else he could have boasted. And every good Jew in that day and age knew that there was one thing you didn't do before a holy God boast. So Paul says it's not a wage. Well, maybe it's because of his circumcision then. Maybe it's not, you know, the wages of his works, but it's the fact that he's, he, he, he's symbolized by the action of this, this set-apartness, this circumcision. He's in the covenant people of God. Maybe that's how he got righteous, because the law is good, and Abraham kept the law. No, Paul says it's not that either. It's by faith, and it's before any single action is taken. That righteousness was credited by faith before his circumcision. So all is a gift. All is a gift. This is the answer of grace. Even faith is a gift. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, I know some of you don't like that because you're like, wait a minute, faith is a gift? Simmer down, bro. That's the part I do. Nope. Not according to the Bible, it's not. According to the Bible, that is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 that his grace might come to you, that you might believe so that no one can boast. Now, I'm not saying we don't have agency there. I'm not saying that we're robots. I'm saying Paul's point is, look, don't object to this grace because it's been this way the whole time. And if you can see this about Abraham, I love this. You will read the Bible differently. There are too many Christians. There are too many churchy McChurcherton type people not any of you, of course, who genuinely think that like the Old Testament is a different God than the New Testament or that somehow God worked differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. 
Paul's point with Abraham is, no, this isn't novel. I'm not making something up here. I'm not, you know, oh, here comes Paul and he loved Jesus and he's going to give you all a new teaching and change everything. We'll just take the Old Testament and toss it to the wind. It's the exact opposite. What Paul is saying is, listen up, Jews. You're my brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul says he's more Jewish than anyone. Trained under Gamaliel, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees. He's the most Jewish guy in the room. And he says it's always been this way. It's always been the grace of God that comes without God being compelled or coerced to grant mercy on those who do not deserve it for free forever. And when you see that, you will go back to the Old Testament, even the hard, weird stuff, even Leviticus, even the tabernacle and the temple and the laws and all the stories and and, and the wisdom literature. And you'll go back and you know what you're going to see there? you're going to see Christ because it was always God's plan. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus was not God's plan B. Like, oh, dang, Israel failed. Oh, plan B. No. In fact, the opposite. Israel was saved by grace. The waters opened. They believed and walked through. There was judgment on the Egyptians and grace for them. And only after that grace of salvation came the law. It's always been this way, Paul. And how amazing is that? So now you can open up to the weird books, like Hezekiah, Amos. Open up to like the super weird books that you, you know, just flip through. And it's all pointing to Christ. Paul's argument here about Abraham changes the way we read the entire Bible. He says, look, from the moment of Adam and Eve's sin, when God promised them, covenanted with them, a seed will come from Eve. And this seed, this son, this child, it will crush the head of the serpent, even as it is struck in the heel. It will sacrifice its life to crush sin and Satan and death forever. And it will all be by grace. It's always been that way. And so we have to allow grace to shock us. It's not just, ooh, I did a lot of work. Here's my paycheck. There's no gratitude in that. There's no joy in that. There's what we deserve because a wage is due. But grace is shocking. Again, it's not medicine to a sick person. It's resurrection to a dead person. That's why he even calls upon the example of David. He says, look, if Abraham's not a big enough gun, let me pull out the bazooka. David. Nobody's going to mess with David. And even he understood in Psalm 32 that blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who is forgiven and whose sins covered. So this gift is grace. And the, the beauty of grace is two things. The first thing that's so beautiful about grace is that no one is ever too far gone. God help us to believe that. No one is ever too far gone. That's the first part. And the second part of what's so amazing and beautiful about the grace of God is, is what God actually did in that gracious work. And I just want to read this quote because this hit me because I've used this because it'll preach. So this hit me. Mike Kruger, guy that I know, Reformed Seminary in Charlotte. He's a professor of New Testament there. He says, look, we, we need to be honest about how we as Christians define grace. He said, as some of you have heard it this way, right? What is Grace unmerited favor. Yeah, unmerited favor. I've said that. 
all the time. He said, and, and to an extent, that's true, so we're not trying to beat up on anyone here, but grace is so much more than unmerited or unearned favor. In fact, I might like to call it demerited favor. Hmm. Demerited favor. Uh, unmerited favor, at least to some extent, implies that there's a, a neutral party. A, a neutral party that is given more than they deserve. And to that extent, it's true. But in grace, the one receiving the grace of God is not neutral, nor is God's sacrifice neutral in the giving of it. So it's not a neutral party who gets, you know, $20 million from a rich king, and isn't that nice? It's so much more than that. Here we're talking about the undeserving, even the unwanting, being gifted with a new standing, righteousness, at the great cost to the giver. The holy righteous one is now given the punishment that the sinner deserves, and the sinner is given the grace that only the king can bestow at great cost. Do you see the divine exchange? He says, look, consider the example of adoption. And I, I think they've uh, had an adoption in their family, so he tells a little bit of a personal story. He said, look, an innocent child is adopted. They come from a place of innocence, neutrality, if you will. They're brought into a home. They're given a new name, a new family. They come to eat at your dinner table. They come to receive your identity. They're brought in legally to everything you have and own is theirs to inherit. And that's beautiful. But that's not the whole story of grace. He said, now I want you to imagine adoption in this way. You go down to the local federal prison and you find someone who is completely unworthy of your love and your name and your table and your inheritance. You find someone whose crimes are heinous. They in no way deserve to be brought in to your family. And you decide out of love to set your will upon them. You bring them to your house. You let them sleep in your room. You give them food from your table. And all the while, the judge demands that someone replaces the freed criminal. And so you send your own son. And the son that you send now has to go live in that federal prison. They have to take on that name. They have to wear those clothes and bear the weight of those consequences and punishment. They have to suffer what they do not deserve so that the one who deserves might escape the suffering deserved and be replaced with the love of God. That's great. That's grace. God's grace is looking at us and saying, it is undeserved, but I love you and I will bring you into my home. And the only way that God can do that and be both just and the justifier is to substitute or exchange our sin and brokenness with the perfection of his son. And he does it at great cost and he does it with great joy. That is the grace God. And so Paul says, all of your objections are overturned because of the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God, who not only stands in your place to bear your sin, but lifts you up into his place of righteousness by the grace of God. And I want you to remember the man that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. This friend that I met 
when I first came here three years ago. And I thought God could, but mm, I don't know if he would do a miracle. I'm Presbyterian. We don't use the M word very much. I'm talking about miracles very often. And sometimes I struggle to believe like God, I mean, Really, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through your people here, can you do something that's bigger than us? Can you do something that's so big that we all know there is no way in our own strength, in man's power, apart from the miraculous work of God to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, that it's possible? I am very happy to report that I I believe in the grace of God, not just because of Paul's watertight argument, which is logical. But because in so many ways, and in this way in particular, I have seen it with my own eyes. This brother that I met three years ago, who was in the depths of his struggles, was healed, was redeemed, was brought out of his brokenness, was remarried to his wife, and is now on the verge of moving to a new city where she got a job, and he's going to be working and serving as a pastor at a church. It's unbelievable. I mean, and he's, he's here with us today. So Jaime, would you come up? Because brothers and sisters, we, we need these stories among us. It's not about him or me or you or anybody. So Jaime and Isela are moving to Michigan. She got a great job up there. It's a, it literally is just another crazy miracle story. Take him out to coffee really quick or whatever to ask him about it. But an opportunity is open for him to serve under a pastor at kind of a multi-site church planning deal and do ministry there. And I know Jaime would be the first person to say, you know, it's not about him. It's not about us. It's all about the goodness and the grace of God. So I want to give him a second to just kind of finish off this sermon. And then I'm going to pray for you. So let me get you a mic here. Good morning, church. So Abraham believed God. You know, as with time, this is becoming one of my favorite verses. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And you know what happened when he believed in God? When he believed God? His life changed completely, and he changed the course of history. And so for a lot of us, for a long time, I believed in God, but I didn't believe God. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the miracles happen, right? That's what impressed Jesus when he was on this, on this earth and in his ministry. Many times, a lot of his healings were followed with, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's what impresses God. That's what moves God. And so I encourage us all to start believing God, not just believing in God. Um, From the bottom of my heart, on behalf of Isela and I, thank you, church. Thank you. We spent a lot of years here, and from the moment we walked in these doors, you offered your friendship. You became family to us when our family was so far away. And in my darkest hour, when I was dying in my addiction, some of you believed God, and you prayed for me, and, and you, that God would intervene in my life, and he did. 
and he restored us, and we got married here twice. <laughs> what a church, <laughs> right? How amazing is that? Mm. But above all, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, whose grace and mercy and love, when I was so far away, reached out to me, and he restored me, and a wretch like me, and now he's calling me to serve mm. the people in Benton Heights, Michigan. I, I am in awe of God. I struggle to believe him. This is so unbelievable. Mm. But um, I love you, church. I, I ask that you pray for, for that community um, and that you would pray for our ministry as we, as we go forward and answer God's call. I'm going to step out of the boat, and, and I'm going to serve God. After everything that he's done for me, how can I not do it? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Christ Church, for being home to us. And we just love you guys. We really do. There's so many people in this room that, that are so special to me and Isela. And I could go on forever, but thank you, Pastor. And, um, and let's be a church that believes God. Let's be a church that believes God. Thank you so much. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray for our brother. Let's pray and give thanks to God. Jesus, your grace answers us. Your grace answers us. Thank you. Thank you that we're not past the age of seeing the Holy Spirit work miracles in our own lives and the lives of people that we love in all glory and all honor. And all praise is due to you, Lord. None of us can boast. In fact, the more that we've been saved from, the more clearly we see our need and how far off we were, the more certain we are that we have nothing to boast about except what you have done in us and through us. What joy. Lord, it's such good news that you don't need our good works to save us. But now that we are saved, it's also good news that our neighbors do. And so I pray with Paul at the end of our text, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of faith. If we haven't encountered this wonderful, amazing grace that answers our every question, Lord, would you help us to love our city well? Would you help us to love our neighbor? Would you help us to believe that no one is ever too far gone? Would you help us to make that it's too good to be true, true, in the lives of the people you have given us to love. So we thank you for Jaime and Isela. Bless them as they go. Thank you for their ministry here and just the wonderful work, the incredible, almost unbelievable work of grace you've done in our lives and in our church with them. We praise you for all of it and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.